pride, pride is, is considered to be the sin that births all other sins, all other evils. And I want to read to you a quote about pride because pride doesn't stay hidden. It rises up even in the church. And we need to be aware of pride and the danger of pride in the fellowship of the redeemed. It will cause divisions. It will cause distress in the body of Christ. So I want to read this quote to you so you can set your minds upon this and think about this as we enter into the text in Philippians 2 this morning. Again, pride is considered to be the sin that births all other evils. Quote, Nothing so infects our total being as selfish pride. Pride tears apart nations as ethnic groups assert themselves. Pride corrupts governments as politicians enrich themselves. Pride destroys businesses as executives wink at accountability. Pride neutralizes the gospel as church members celebrate themselves instead of Christ and others. Close quote. Paul warns the church at Philippi about pride in Philippians 2. And we'll look at that in a few moments. Here in, in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, he's, he's warning the church there at Philippi that their unity will be disrupted if they do not guard against their enemy of pride that's in their unredeemed flesh. And that enemy manifests itself even in the church as selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition, as we talked about last time, is, is the attitude of, of the pride-driven politician that crushes his enemies to gain a higher place or a higher office. Selfish ambition seeks the praises of others for our service, for our glory. And that happens even in our Christian service. And Paul's warning against this because it will disrupt the unity of Christ's body. He also warns against conceit. Conceit is vainglory. It's glory that has no basis except in our own depraved minds. It's an attitude that makes us feel as if we are more superior than others. And listen, we have all fought with conceit and selfish ambition, even as believers, have we not? Let's be honest. We look at other Christians who struggle and go through difficulties and we think, God, I can't believe they do that. That's conceit. And sometimes we take that further to think that, well, if they fail, I can actually take their place and show them how to do it right. That's selfish ambition. Paul says these are enemies that will rise up even in the church, and we must be on guard against them. It will affect even the best of efforts, at least outward efforts, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through seven tells us that we need to examine our attitudes even in our Christian service. Why, why are we here this morning? Why were we singing a few moments ago? Why are we fellowshipping together in the Word as we sit under the, the guidance of the Spirit this morning? Why are we here? If the attitude's not right, it is not worship. It is not worthy of Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says this in 1 Corinthians 13.1, 
If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, the love of Christ that he's referring here to, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I am really skilled, really good at speaking and giving messages and and showing you wondrous things from my mind, yet I do it without love, I'm just like a noisy gong. I'm useless. Verse 2 says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I am a great theologian. I know a lot of doctrine, but I don't share it out of love, but more out of selfish ambition or conceit. I have nothing. Verse 3 says, if I'm sacrificial, if I, if I give away all that I have or all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Oh, I, I give of myself all the time because I want people to see me giving. I have nothing. Even if I give up my own life, if my heart's not right, it is nothing. Then he defines what love is in verse 4. Love is patient. And basically what Paul's doing here is he's defining Jesus. Because Jesus spoke with both the tongues of men and angels, and he did so with love. And Jesus had prophetic powers and knew all things and had all faith as to remove mountains. And he was full of love when he expressed that. And Jesus gave up his life, even his body, to be sacrificed. And it was out of love. And it was worthy of all praise. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth love bears all things love believes all things love hopes all things love endures all things verse 4 Jesus is patient and kind Jesus does not envy or boast Jesus is not arrogant Jesus is not rude Jesus does not insist on his own way Jesus was not irritable or resentful He did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoiced with the truth. Jesus bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things on behalf of those he came to die for, for the glory of his Father. That's our example. Even in our Christian service, we need to be aware that pride can corrupt the best of efforts. Selfish ambition and conceit lie underneath in our unredeemed flesh, And we're good at camouflaging it. But James says if there's problems in the church, it's because you've got pride in the heart. Look what it says in James 4. James 4, verse 1. And remember, he's he's addressing believers here as James is writing to this church, just as Paul is in Philippi. He says to the church here in verse 1 of chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive, or do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
says, you have, you have wrong intentions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, he's addressing a church. He's telling the church, look, at the root of all your problems, the root cause of your divisions in the church is self-conceit, selfishness, selfish ambition, and selfish conceit lies underneath even in the church, and we must be aware of it, and we must guard against it. He's telling the church here that that you, you guys want something so bad that you're willing to actually, in your heart, murder others in the church to get it. Church, we can, we can be so hurtful, both physically and, and emotionally, to other people, even people in the church and in our families, that, that it, it will destroy unity. It will destroy trust in the body. We need to be very, very cautious of this. This is, this is so important. Understand why this is important. The church belongs to Jesus. We have, we have the stewardship to care for one another carefully because we are the bride of Christ. We, we are the expression of His manifest love and His work. Therefore, we should not take one another lightly. We should not let pride and selfish ambition and conceit divide us. Rather, we should submit to one another and have compassion for one another as Christ did. That's what Philippians is going to push us to see this morning. Paul's going to tell us that selfish ambition and conceit are, are two enemies that must be taken seriously because they will disrupt the unity of God's family. Let's go, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Thankfully, in Philippians 2, God tells us how to defeat these indwelling enemies in verses 1 through 8. Now, we're going to focus primarily on 3 and 4 this morning. But I'm going to read in a moment 1 to 8. In, in Philippians 2, 1 and 2, we were told last time that we have provisions in Christ. And we had to take those provisions in, in Christ and use them in the church so that we could promote unity, promote the health of the body. We have, in this text, encouragement from one another. We have comfort from one another. We have participation with one another. We have the affection of Christ shared with one another in the body. This puts down pride. This promotes unity. In the text we're going to look at this morning in Philippians 2, 3 to 4, God tells us that selfishness and conceit are defeated by taking Christ's provisions of encouragement and comfort and participation and affection, taking those, those provisions and putting them into application. Putting them into application through, number one, Christ-like submission in the church. And number two, Christ-like compassion in the church. In other words, division in the body of Christ will be defeated if we put on Christ. If we put on Christ's attitude and we put it into application in the local church. A lot of times we, we talk about Jesus and we talk about Him not simply being an example for us to follow. We actually look to Jesus as our substitute, the one who imputed His righteousness to us. He is the atoning sacrifice. But He was also the perfect example of what love looks like. And He has filled us with His Spirit and His Word and called us to follow His example. And that's what this text will call us to do this morning. So let's read Philippians 2, 1 to 8. 
the Apostle Paul writes, So if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind with one purpose. That's what he means. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's going to say in verse 5, have this attitude. Follow this example, which is already yours in Christ Jesus, because you have his encouragement, you have his love, you have his participation, you have his affection. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be asserted or grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The only one who deserved to never die chose to die like those who deserved God's wrath so that we could be united in the church, so that we could know his love and see the expression of that love in the body, having the same mind, same love, being in full accord of one mind for his glory. The church is for the glory of Christ. That's why we exist. Paul's command in Philippians, actually 2.3, that tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, that command in verse, verses 3 and 4 actually are connected to verses 5 to 8. They're based on what Christ has done for us. Therefore, do nothing from selfishness because of Christ's humility, Christ's sacrifice that brought you together in the body. And I think when he, when he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we are to count others more significant than ourselves. He's saying once you understand who you are in Christ, you will be humbled and you will count others as more significant once you understand verses 5 through 8. The revelation of Christ's humiliation will transform how we view ourselves and how we treat others. I think that's what Paul is getting across. Basically, he's saying, if, if you see Jesus' humility correctly, you will realize the depth of your own depravity and the greatness of His grace. And that grace brought you into a church, into the body of Christ. And he expects this to cultivate humility in the church at Philippi. I think it will cultivate humility here in our church. If we understand how depraved we were when God saved us. Our, our depraved condition was, was so bad. Just think about this. Just, just think about the contrast. It was so bad that it took God the Son sinking into human flesh to reverse our condemnation and remove God's righteous indignation. It took God to redeem us. No other man could do it. God Himself 
came down and sank into human flesh, humbled Himself. The Creator became the creation to save us from our sins and from God's righteous wrath. That's a humbling revelation. This, this is a humbling revelation and it's a humbling provision. And it should lead us to humble ourselves for the sake of the rest of Christ's body. We're in the body together. We're here not on our own, but we're here as a part of the expression of God's love toward others here in this church. So therefore we should treat one another as if we're loving Christ Himself. Just imagine if He was here. How would you treat Him on a Sunday morning? How would you interact with Jesus? Would you briefly shake hands and split? Or would you find out if He had any needs and consider Him as more significant than yourself? Well, we are called to, to do that here in this church with one another because you are an expression of His love made manifest here on earth. And if we understand how He reached into the world and saved us, we will reach out to those who He connects us with in the church. We were, we were so deep. He sank, he sank deep to come here. But we were deep, deeply immersed in our sin. We were so deep in our sin that the Bible describes us as spiritually dead to God. The Bible describes us as enemies of God. It describes us as followers of the prince of the power of the air. It describes us as those who are lust-driven children of wrath according to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God. <laughs> but God did something. Something phenomenal. Something supernatural. Something beyond our imagination. And certainly beyond what we deserved. He reached down to us. It says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy or compassion, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's by His favor you've been rescued. By the favor of His Son becoming man, taking your place, being your substitute, dying under God's wrath for your sins. It's by that favor, it's by that favor that you've been made alive that you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he's talking about the church. We are the workmanship of Christ's atonement. We are the product that Jesus produced. Therefore, love one another. 
Serve one another. Put down selfish ambition. Crush conceit. Because God condescended. And he showed us humility at work. He showed us agape. He showed us love we don't deserve. Philippians and Ephesians tells us that, that God, God the Son, the King of glory, became like us. And in humility, He died for us. He submitted to suffering because of our sins to redeem us with His blood, to reveal to us His greatness, and to manifest that greatness through His body on earth. This is, this is a humbling and it should be a life-altering revelation to us. There is nothing more important to me other than Jesus Himself than the church. The church is primary to God. It wasn't a secondary afterthought to God. It was His first choice. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was going to die for those that God set His love on, the church. There is, there is I believe, a low view of the church in our culture today, in Christian culture today. It's through the church that the love of Christ should be manifest. And it's through the church manifesting the love of Christ that we'll go into the world and evangelize properly and productively. And if we have a low view of the church and a low view of the commands that we've been given in the church, we will be stagnant, self-focused, and we will go nowhere. We'll be content in our conceit. We've got our salvation. We're going to abide until He comes. So the world can perish while we sit here on our seats. Paul wants to warn us, God wants to warn us about that kind of selfish attitude, that kind of conceit. And he warns us by focusing on Christ. Look at Jesus. He gave up glory for humility to bring you together in the body. Therefore, humble yourselves. Consider others as more important than yourselves. That's an, an astounding statement in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. That, that, that humbling revelation will put to death selfish ambition. It'll do that in the true Christian's heart. Look with me at Philippians 2, 3. God tells us that, number one, Christ-like submission will defeat selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It means do nothing with these kinds of attitudes. It doesn't mean do nothing. Okay? Some people could read that and think, well, you know, I know I've got selfishness in my flesh, and I know I'm conceited, so I can't serve at all in the church. That's not what he's saying. He's basically going to tell you, you can, you can crucify that by looking to Christ. He died for your selfishness. He died for your conceit. So he says, but in humility... Do something. Do nothing from selfishness, but in humility, do something. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Get a right view of Jesus' work, and you'll have a right view of your atonement. Therefore, you will work in the church for the glory of Christ and the good of your brothers. So do everything with Jesus' attitude. Do nothing from your past attitude. Do nothing from the attitude that reflects your unredeemed flesh. Do everything with the attitude that points to Christ. Now, it takes grace. It takes a redeemed heart. 
If you're not saved, you'll never be able to do this. And if you struggle with this, it's not necessarily an indication that you're not saved, but you need to repent if you're not doing this and look to Christ. Because I'm going to tell you, all of us fall short of verse 3. We love ourselves far too much. We live in a world that tells us to love ourselves far too much and not deny ourselves for the glory of Christ. But loving ourselves, selfishness, pride, it is the root cause of all other sins and evils. We saw that in the garden. It was the root cause of Eve's fall and Adam. In Philippians 2.3, we are, we are being instructed by God here. Do not let the, the weight of this pass you. Feel this. God Himself, through the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is instructing us to count or consider others as more important than ourselves. And He's telling us to do that because of what Christ has done for us. He bases it on verses 5-8. through eight. Verses 5-8 through eight testify that we were unlovely, outcast, undeserving of Christ's compassion and condescension. Yet Jesus counted our needs as more significant than His own. And He came and He humbled Himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most brutal, heinous way to die. Because that's what we deserved. Yet He counted our needs as more important than His comfort. And He took our place. So that's supposed to do something to us according to this text. If you're humbling yourselves in light of God's grace and the work of Christ, you're going to count others as more significant than yourselves. He basically, he's saying we should now see our brothers and sisters in Christ and even the lost through new eyes. We should see them through the, the eyes of Christ's humility and condescension. If, if we see how Christ humbled himself for us, we therefore should humble ourselves for the sake of others, including the lost. The lost need us to count them as more significant than ourselves. That takes sacrifice, just like it took Christ's sacrifice. They, they need us to count them as more significant than our busy schedules. They need us to count them more significant than our ball games and our hunting adventures and our shopping excursions. They need us to count them as more significant than our private plans and our retirement. They need us to share the gospel, no matter what it costs us. Even though it may cut into our playtime and our retirement. But if you think about it, you don't really enjoy those very long anyway. But when you share the gospel with the lost, there is a joy there that cannot be diminished. God, God may just call us to retire retirement and use our playtime for the sake of others, especially those who are lost. And if we do that, we might even discover that by taking time to count others as more significant than ourselves, by, by sharing our lives with them, and sharing the gospel with them, we, we might just find out that's what we were created to do in the first place, and there is a great joy in pursuing this, greater than all of our personal pursuits. 
We might even find that serving one another in the menial tasks of life is more joyful than spending time with our favorite hobby or watching a movie to indulge our flesh. We might find that serving our church family is more enjoyable than serving ourselves. We, we might find that reaching out to our city or going on mission trips or visiting the elderly or sharing our resources with the needy might bring us more joy than anything else on earth because we are able to reflect the glory of Christ and declare His message of hope and grace and change. That's what we were made to do. That's one of the reasons we should count others as more significant than ourselves and be willing to give up some things so that they would gain all things in Christ. When the world sees us sacrificing our time for one another in the church or for those that are lost around us, they want to know about that hope and that reason that we do what we do. And that's when we tell them we have a Savior who did this. Jesus left heaven's glory, became a man, lived the life that we could not live, obedient, even obedient unto death, because that's what we deserved. He took upon Himself our sins, received God's wrath, gave us His righteousness, rose from the grave to declare that He was perfect and holy and sovereign over all things. And we are in Him because He condescended to come to us. That's why we come to you with hope in Christ and willing to serve you through our sacrifices. And honestly, when you give your life for that reason, with that attitude toward Christ and for the lost or for one another, it is not a task or a harsh duty. It is a delight. It's a gospel-driven delight. But it does take submission. Submission to the Lordship of Jesus first. He commands us to do this. It's not, a, it's not based on feelings. I don't, I don't feel love toward a lot of people. But I am commanded to love people as Christ has loved me. So therefore I examine Christ's love for me. Then I begin to love people. I begin to see people the way Christ sees them. I begin to see those in the church as precious unto God so much so that He would send His Son to die for them? How could I deny fellowship with them? How could I ignore their needs? Their needs are as important as mine, or more so. That's, that's, that, that requires grace, that requires submission, it requires Christ-like submission, but that will defeat selfishness and ambition in the church. It requires Jesus' love manifest in us. It involves sacrifices. It involves giving our time, giving energy to serve others. It involves giving money to help others, to, to serve those when it's not convenient to serve them. So it does require God's provisions. It requires God's means of grace. And we, we talked about this last time from Hebrews. It talks about us not failing to assemble ourselves together, to prod one another on to good works. That's the means of grace. God's given to us. That's His provision. It comes to us through the fellowship of the local church. God's telling us we need to be encouraging one another. That's His provision. He's given us that in Christ so that we could do that together in the body. Comfort one another. Participate with one another. Show affection to one another as we gather together in Jesus' name. Do you realize when we pray in Jesus' name, 
When we gather together, we're saying we're gathering together in Jesus' name. We are declaring something magnificent. We are coming together in Christ as His body to represent Him in this local church and to the world around us, to identify with Jesus. And we are not ashamed to do so. We should look forward to this. It is a privilege and an honor. It is something that no one understands unless they've been born again. This gathering is more important than the Senate gathering. It's more important than the president and his, his staff gathering. This gathering is precious to God so much so that, again, He sent His Son to bleed and die so that we could have fellowship with one another. Sharing, sharing our love isn't something we just do with our mouths in the church. It involves more than feelings. It involves action and devotion. If, if we say we love one another, yet we neglect one another in the local church, there is no proof of love in us. We need to be pursuing one another practically, applying the provisions of encouragement and comfort, participation and affection in the church. Every day, every single day, we as a church have an opportunity to either choose selfishness or to reveal Christ's love to others in our church. We can do that by setting aside ourselves and recognizing that God's called us together for a purpose and humble ourselves, sacrifice for the sake of others, physically seek the needs of others, spiritually console one another, serve one another as Christ has served us. Now, now I know when, when I say that, sacrifice like Christ sacrificed for us, give like Christ gave for us. I realize that when I say that, I'm talking about God the Son. I realize that, okay? He is unique in His giving, and His sacrifice is certainly unique. But even so, as Christians, we are called and we are equipped by God the Spirit to put on Christ's attitude and put His love into action. That's part of what happened when you were redeemed and placed into His body and filled with His Spirit. We are to do these things, put on His attitude and His action for the good of others. That's what Jesus taught us to do through His example in John 13. Go to John 13 with me. This is a place that you go to in the Gospels to see Jesus actually setting an example of servant leadership for others to follow, even for us to follow at this point in church history. What an amazing example this is. And I'll just say this, John 13, 1 to 17 is a, a mirror image of Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Because in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, we see how Jesus sets the example of sacrifice and love by humbling Himself and laying aside His glory, His visible glory, and being humbled even to the point of death, and then taking back His life, picking up His life, and bringing forth the glory of His work in the resurrection. And this is even sort of mirrored in this text here. And He's saying this text is given as an example of humility that we should be able to follow. John 13.1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. 
That's a great statement. When He loves us, He loves us to the end. Verse 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, notice this, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. This is the towel of a slave. All right. Laid aside his garments. Laid aside his glory as the teacher and put on the towel of the slave. Wow, a lot like what he did when he left heaven's glory. Laid aside his glory and took upon himself the towel of a slave. Then he poured, verse 5 says, water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He says, just dunk me in this. I'm ready. I mean, I, I don't want to miss anything that you have for me. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, he's calming Peter down here. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, notice this, when he had finished his work as a slave, he put on his outer garments. He assumed his glory once again and resumed his place. Is that not a reflection of what he did in the resurrection? After he served, he rose victoriously and was seated back at the place of glory at the right hand of the Father. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? No, they didn't. Not until the resurrection. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's Paul's argument in Philippians 2.3. If you humble yourselves, you will consider others as more significant than yourself, just as Christ did in His humiliation. And you will follow His example because it reflects His love for His people. In Romans 15, we are told we can follow Jesus' example because we have His Spirit, His power residing in us and His Word directing us. In Romans 15, verse 1, He's going to tell us that we're, we're called to do something here and He's going to tell us why we can do it. It's because we have the Word that guides us and we have the Spirit that teaches us. 
empowers us. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is a reoccurring theme with Paul. You see that? If you humble yourself in light of God's grace to you, you recognize He saved you through the sacrifice of His Son, you will humble yourselves. That actually makes you strong in faith and makes you consider others as more important than yourselves. Verse 2, he says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, to edify him. Because, or for, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. (laughs) For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, notice, with one voice magnify, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And then in verse 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that, notice, by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. We have Christ's example. We have the instruction of the Scriptures that came before us that we have to read from the Old Testament into the New Testament about God's condescension, coming to His people, giving up His glory for the sake of those in need. Then he says, I am confident that you have that and you have the Spirit giving you knowledge and instructing you so that you can sing the praises of God with one voice humbled by Christ. That's what we're called to do as a church. I love verse 6. We have this gift from God that we may together with one voice glorify Him in love, in unity. So what I want us to do before I go further here, I want us to examine our lives in light of this text and in light of the text in Philippians 2.3. Are we sovereign grace? Are we in humility counting others in our church family as more significant than ourselves. Now, I wrote down a few things here to help me examine my own heart. I'm just going to share them with you. Ask yourself this. Do do I see the struggles of other people in our church? Do I see the struggles, the shortcomings, and the sins of others Do I see the misunderstanding of Scripture that some people have? Do I see the failure of some parents in our church? Do I see the failure of those who promise things and don't keep their commitments? Do I see the failure of those who say they love Jesus but they don't walk in holiness? Do you see those things? Be honest with yourself. You do. All those things are here. Probably all those things are in my house. But if you see these things, you need to ask yourself another question. What are you doing to help them carry these things? How are you helping to carry their burdens that you obviously see? 
You see, it's, it's easy for us to see everyone else's faults, but it's also easy for us to miss the conceit in our own hearts. We forget really quickly how often God has used others to humbly correct us and guide us and comfort us in the past. And it's, it's much easier for us, for me, it's much easier for me to, to criticize the failures of others in our church rather than serve those who are failing in our church. But do this with me today, I pray. Pray that instead of doing that, instead of criticizing and expressing conceit, pray that you'll humble yourselves and not criticize one another, but rather pray that God will unite you to your brothers and that you will go to those that Christ died for and placed alongside you so that you could help sanctify them in the truth. You can do that in many practical ways. Nate mentioned some even in the prayer this morning. You can, you can seek out those that you obviously can see are struggling with discouragement. You can reach out to those parents that are struggling with their kids. Listen, one of the ways you do that, I'm going to tell you this, because I've 15 to 2, right? So I've got them spread out there. One of the ways you can encourage my wife and myself is, one, you can come to us when you see us struggling and say, I'm praying for you, and then do that. And pray for our kids' salvation. If you could help me in any way, that would be the greatest way. Pray that our children would be saved and that we would lead them to Christ. You can also not just seek out those discouraged, reach out to struggling parents. You can visit the lonely. You can visit those who are elderly, those who can't be here because of sickness. You can serve in this church body. You can use your gifts and talents for the good of others. If you see the church failing in some way, you who see that need to help carry the burden. The responsibility falls to you if you see it. You know, we can blame the church. We can blame others in the church for their own failures, but if we see those failures and we don't come alongside them and help carry their burdens, we are prone to fall into that same sin ourselves, according to Galatians, Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He is conceited. If you see the needs around you, but you don't act on behalf of those who are hurting, you are conceited and you're full of selfish ambition. And it will bring division into the body. It won't bring the body together. We are, we are sinful people with sinful problems and we're, we're in need of one another's sanctifying love and grace. So we... we we have a hard time expressing that we need this because we have pride, we have selfishness. But we need one another in the body. God so knit us together so that we would actually see the problems clearly. That's why he tells us to be knit back together with love and to love one another in practical ways. In Philippians 2, 3-4, to Paul tells us that if we, if we seek to serve others by considering them, their needs as more significant than our own, it will humble us and it will cause Christ to be magnified in us. It will defeat selfishness and it will lead to Christ-like actions and compassion. That's what Philippians 
is saying. God's telling us in Philippians 2, 4, number 2, that Christ-like compassion will defeat conceit. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 4, notice how it's phrased. It's very easy to miss some of the points here. Look not only to our own interests, needs, okay, problems or situations, needs, I think is a good way to translate it. Look not only to our own needs, but also to the needs of others. In other words, what he's saying is, is we must not look only to our own interests. When you come and gather here on Sunday, you're not, I hope, primarily coming just to get yourself fed. I hope you're coming to feed others and encourage others. You need to be fed. But you need to be fed so you can go out. You're equipped so that you can go and serve others. So we must not look only to our own interests. What he's saying positively is this. We must, we must elevate, I think that's a way to put it. It would make sense. Elevate the needs of others to the same level as our needs. That's what he's trying to say here. Don't, don't just focus on coming here for your own sake or coming to the church for your own interest. Come here and elevate the interest of other people to the same level as your interests. Look after the interest or the needs of those that Christ died to unite you with. You're part of one body. You know, in Ephesians 5, 25 to 28, Paul tells us that husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, and he says later in verse 28, basically that um, men, love your wives like you love yourself already. You, you, you love yourself, you nourish yourself, you already take care of yourself. He doesn't have to tell us to, to love ourselves. We do that far too much. What he's saying there and here is love other people the way you already love yourself. You nurture yourself. You feed yourself. You care for your needs. See other people on that same level as equal to you because you're in the body united particularly in this local church together. Now, in Philippians 2, 4, he, when he says this, Paul, Paul's not advoc- advocating... Um, asceticism here. He's, he's not saying um, neglect your family so you can serve in ministry. He's not saying that. Pastors can't even pastor a church unless they're taking care of their family first. He's not saying neglect work or family so that you can give others your time and your effort. He's simply saying this. Don't just look out for your own interests. Make the needs of others as important as your own needs. If I could boil it down, that's what I would say. Make the needs of other Christians as important as your own needs. Now ask yourself, are you and I doing that right now? If we are doing that right now, I'll guarantee this, you're concerned about all the people who aren't here. You've been thinking about them all week, praying for them, calling them. I'll say this. I've fallen short of that. And in this text, God's calling me to repentance. Praise Him for His discipline. God knows that we already care for ourselves. So He's telling us we need to care for others the way we already care for ourselves. In Matthew seven twelve, Jesus says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. 
That's what Paul's saying in Philippians 2.4. So, so let's ask ourselves as I'm closing here, do you see needs in our church? Do you consider the problems of others in our church your problems or their problems? If, if you see the needs of others and you're not actively doing something about them, you need to ask God to give you a heart of compassion that reflects Christ. And then you need to go ask the person how you can serve them. And if you are afraid to do that, you come ask Nate or myself and we'll help you with that. However, if you, if you don't see <laughs> needs in our church, it's probably an indication that you haven't spent much time with one another in fellowship because we all have needs. I'm a parent. I've been a parent for 15 years. I've been a husband for almost 23 years. I need help parenting, and I need help being a husband. I fall short of both constantly. So I need your help. I need your encouragement, your correction, your fellowship. Maybe, maybe we're not aware of needs because people are too prideful to share their needs. And so if that's the case this morning, if you have needs and you're not sharing them, I pray that you would repent because we're here to carry the burdens with you. It's part of our privilege and our honor as fellow believers in Christ. Whatever hurts you hurts us. And whatever we can do to heal you will help heal us because we're all one body in Christ. If, if one of the members of our body suffers, we should all feel their pain. And also, if one member of our body prospers, we should all feel their joy. That's unity. And God wants us to protect that by putting away selfish ambition, by putting away conceit and humbling ourselves and counting others as more significant than ourselves and looking out for their interest as if they are ours. So I want you to do that this morning. I want you visibly to glance around you. There are, there are souls in our church who need your encouragement. Some people need your encouragement every single day. There are husbands in this church who need help leading their wives. There are wives in this church who need help submitting to their husbands. There are moms in this church who are weary and feel like giving up, especially those moms who have two-year-olds to newborn, but also those who have adult children that are lost. Sometimes they feel like giving up. Dads who have those same concerns feel like failures, or they feel like they're ill-equipped. So those of you who are aware of these things, go to these people. There are families in our church that need help parenting. They do. They need help budgeting. They need help coping with trials and discouragement in parenting. And I'll admit that we are one of those families. We need that. We need it from others. We need you to see the issues come to us with love and mercy and say, I want to I try to encourage you in this. I don't want to condemn you. Yeah, my, my kids have done those things also. And I, I, I understand where you're coming from. But God has told us this in His Word. He promises to never leave us, even as we're parenting, even as we're dealing with budgets, even as we're struggling with daily trials. So if you see those situations, go to those people. 
look at their problems as if they are your problems because they are if you're in Christ. There are ministries in our church that need you. We need musicians. We need teachers. We need servants. We need laborers. We need evangelists. We need those who want to serve Jesus in the local church, both publicly and privately, behind the scenes. We need deacons. Ask yourself this morning, do you see these needs? Or are we too busy with our own needs? Now, I'm, I'm not trying to throw any stone at anyone here this morning because all the stones are aimed at me. And, and I have to confess, I, I, I am guilty of not doing these things as I ought. But I'm also very aware that there's good news. Christ has forgiven me of my selfish ambition and my conceit and equipped me with His Spirit and His Word and His church so that I can repent and do what I'm supposed to do for your good and for His glory. That's what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 has been doing for me. And, and, and I want you to know, church, that I want to share your interests. But my problem is that my interests try to dominate my heart. And maybe it's because I don't know you have certain needs and I need to be more sensitive. But also you need to share those with me so we can pray together and pursue the glory of God together in seeing those needs met. I want to count your needs as more important than my own. So help me do that by joining me and by following Christ's example that we see there in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Let's pray to do that this morning. Let's pray that, that we will all humble ourselves and honor others so that we can, with one voice in this local church, honor God the Father who sent His Son to be humbled for us and unite us to Himself. Father God, we thank you for Christ's selfless compassion. We thank you for his humble submission. And we are asking that those attributes that were reflected in Christ would be reflected in his body here at Sovereign Grace. I'm thankful for each one here this morning. Each one has been brought here this morning according to your will and for the good of others in our body. So thank you. And Lord, I pray for those who aren't here, who I know would love to be here and to be a part of what we're doing, but they are, they are on the road or they are ill and they are taken away from the fellowship at this time. But God, I pray that your spirit would fill them with love and hope and that their phones and their Internet connections would be filled with calls and messages from those in the church who miss them this day so that they would know the love of Christ in a manifest way. Help us as we continue on in the service to acknowledge your lordship over our lives and your grace that has been bestowed to the church as we, as we are about to celebrate three new members joining the church. I pray that you would, you would unite our hearts in joy as we enter into this celebration through this membership service. I pray that you would be honored as each member of Sovereign Grace and those who will still yet come to be members of Sovereign Grace gather together day in and day out and week in and week out until the time you come. I, I pray that you would be honored as we come humbled, as we come eager 
to serve one another and to glorify you in the world around us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.